morning. How are we doing? Hi. Sorry, <laughs> we're running around a little crazy this morning. How are we doing this week? Good week? Oh yeah, I can tell. That was high energy, guys. High energy. All right, got a few things to cover with you before we jump into the word. Uh, first off, make sure that you grabbed one of the October newsletters. It goes over all the activities that are happening this month, and we got a lot going on in the month of October. Uh, let me go ahead and run over some of the big things with you. Uh, today after church is, of course, uh, Celebration Social. So first Sunday after every uh, of every month, we get together, celebrate birthdays, anniversaries. Um, do we have that today? Okay, we're good. All right. Uh, and so uh, also after church today, we'll be having a quick huddle for Fall Fest. So Fall Festival is coming uh, at the end of the month. Um, Holly is leading that for us, and she's going to just gather the troops together, talk about where we're at, what we need, what we're still lacking. So if you want to hang out for a few moments and help us out with that, we would appreciate it. Uh, if you look at the rest of the month, we got on October 13th, on Saturday morning, we have Fishers of Men. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the projects that need to get done around the building, so we'd really love to see folks show up for that. On the 14th, we'll have child dedication. Uh, if you're not familiar with child dedication, it's when the parents come before the church and come before the Lord and basically commit that they're going to raise their children in a biblical way. And they ask for that one to be a public thing so that they can have the support of the church. Um, and so we just ask if there's anybody who wants to have their child dedicated, please see Brother Joe or myself, and we'll talk to you the details about those things. Uh, on the 16th, a Tuesday, we'll have our food bank service day. We do that every month. Uh, so we meet out at the San Antonio Food Bank to pack up some food. On the 27th, we'll have uh, Sisters in Christ in the morning. And in the afternoon, we will have the actual fall festival from 3 to 5. And then on October 28th, we will have baptism service. Uh, so if you would like to be baptized or learn more about being baptized, please seek me or Brother Joe out. We'd love to talk to you about those details. Everybody make sure you grab one of those. Um, two other things we've got. Uh, Miss Lily brought to our attention today that they uh, are now running the Old Testament tabernacle. It's a life-size replica. Uh, if you're not familiar with the tabernacle, that was basically the, uh, the, the physical location that represented the presence of God. And so this is located in Cibolo, and they run it from October 1st through March 1st. Uh, Miss Lily's been out there before, says so it's amazing. I know I'll be taking out the, the boys to check it out. Um, but they build everything to the specifications in Scripture. Uh, so kind of a, a neat thing to kind of actually see that, which you've read about for so long. So we've got flyers in the back if you want more information. And then the last thing, uh, for Christmas this year, our church is going to be participating in the Samaritan's Purse uh, Operation uh, Christmas Child. And so if you're not familiar with this, what we do is we have 24 boxes in the back. Uh, and what you do is you pick up a box. And basically, you choose, do you want a girl or boy? You choose what age you want. Um, and then you fill it up with Christmas presents and gifts. Um, you buy a label for $9, which will show you where in the world this ends up going um, and what missionaries will be taking it. And then you bring it back to church, and we will make sure they get delivered and sent out. So it's just a good way for us to, in the holiday season, where we're you know, hustle and bustle and got buying gifts for everybody else. Remember, there's other people who are less fortunate than us. Uh, this is a great way to let them know we love them. It's a great way to empower missionaries to reach out uh, with God's love and to share with folks. So we got, uh, we've already had people starting to take some, but back there by the doors you'll see the boxes. Go ahead and grab one. We also have the instructions there, and they have a website which will even talk about some of the gifts that are good to put in there. It's typically things like a soccer ball or a teddy bear, uh, things that have a little bit more longevity to them. Yeah, you deflate the soccer ball, and it'll fit in there. Um, that, that, that normally is actually the, num the number one gift they want to see. Yes, thank you. Let me stress that to our congregation. You deflate the soccer ball. Okay, I don't want to see you duct taping the lid around an inflated soccer ball. I, yeah, I love you guys, but I know you do that. All right, so... All right. <laughs> I literally, Holly's voice, she has no voice. Yes. The Sisters in Christ, we're going to not have that day. Okay, so no Sisters in Christ this month because of Fall Fest. All right. It's going to be an interesting meeting afterwards. <laughs> We are starting a brand new series called The Way of Life. And, and let me talk to you a little bit about why we're going to be doing this series. Um, 
me and the leadership team have been talking about where the church is at and, and you know what does God have in plan for our future and what do we see happening in the lives of our members and one of the things that really kind of hit home for us is probably about a year ago we started seeing a lot of new people come into the church and a lot of these new people that were coming to the church they didn't have a huge church background uh, they didn't really grow up in the church, or if they did, it was more one of those things where I went because mom and dad made me. But their actual knowledge and, and grasp of theology, of the Bible, of church tradition, of all these things was pretty new. It was pretty fresh. And so we've seen these people come and, and be part of the family and, and serve and grow and change. But one of the things that was on our heart as a leadership team was to make sure that what these folks have changed into is that they've changed into disciples of Jesus Christ. And what they haven't changed into is church folk. Now there's a difference between those two, right? Church folk means you know how to behave at church, right? You know how to say the right things. You know what answers you should give to questions. You know what time you know service starts at. You know which pew is yours, right? Everybody have their own pew. Everybody says no, but as soon as somebody flip flops sides, everybody's like, I didn't even know you were here today. And please, please, like, I'm just. You guys have never done this, but please never do this. I have been to churches as a visitor where I will sit down in a pew and they're like, Sir, we're so glad you're here today, uh, but we're going to have to ask you to go ahead and move pews because that's Mr. James's pew. And I'll tell you, I've literally done this before. I've gone, you want me to get up for the pew? And they're like, yes. And I have gotten up and left. I just left. Right? We, we, we don't have assigned seating here. Come, come, come and pick whatever seat you want. But what I want to be careful of is, guys, it is possible to become church folk and not to be passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. And, and we've talked a lot about our church. In fact, every Sunday we talk about that you have what, a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And I always tell you before you leave, don't forget you have a mission, which is to go outside those doors and to go and make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. Well, one of the things that was kind of a concern to me is, are we sure that everybody inside these walls already is a disciple that loves God, loves people, and follows, or I'm sorry, loves God, loves people, and follows Jesus? And especially parents. Do we know that every one of our teenagers, that every one of our children, that they are passionate disciples of Jesus Christ? See, sometimes what happens is when we come to church is we learn the details and we forget the reason that we're here from the very beginning. We forget that this is all built upon the gospel. This is all built upon the life of Jesus Christ and the love that he displayed for us and the things that he did. And what I don't want us to do is that we get so used to learning how to function in these walls that we forget what the whole point of this thing is. Amen. And the whole point of this is that Jesus has come to show you and I the way to live life. Amen. And in fact, what he wants to tell us is, before him, you don't even know what life is. That Christ doesn't come to offer you a better life. He comes to offer you life. Amen. Without him, you are dead. And so I really want to challenge you in this series to not think about yourself as a church person, but to think yourself as a person sitting in a relationship with God and go, do I understand even the basics, the foundation of what our relationship is built on? And secondarily, if you're his child and his disciple, you have a mission. So not only should you be able to know these, these truths, so not only should you be able to understand them in your own heart, but can you communicate them to other folks? But brothers and sisters, there is no excuse for us if we are seriously taking to heart the mission of Jesus Christ to go make disciples in all the world, then each and every one of us should be able to articulate what the gospel is. We should be able to break it down for people, walk it through it, them, walk them through it, tell them our own testimony and story. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always see that. So not only do we need to assess, is this truth in my own life, but am I capable of sharing this truth with someone else? And brothers and sisters, where well, you've got to get real, if the answer to that question is no, you are not fulfilling the job your Lord has given you. Parents, let me step on your toes real quick, too. 
I see parents dedicate all kinds of time and energy to make sure their children are good at certain things in life. When your kid is in sports, you will five times a week or less drive them to some field, make sure they have the right equipment, the right gear, the right ball, the right coach. You will for hours make sure that they're practicing their drills. Often if you see your child is not performing as well as the others, that's not the only practice. You're going to bring them home and you're going to practice more. Right? And parents, I mean, have you ever had that moment with your child where you're like, oh my goodness, we do not throw a baseball that way. I will tell you, when your kids first start playing sports, there's that gut-wrenching moment where you're like, oh gosh, he is not doing that publicly, is he? I coached soccer for, for Jake and, and Ty, and this weekend was our first game for the three-year-olds. And this poor dad, this poor dad, his boy just would not go on the field. And every time he would go on the field, he'd cry. But I think the one that was in more pain was the father. The father, like you could physically see him crumbling on the sidelines that his little boy would not stay on the field. And every time he stepped foot on it, would run off crying. He eventually had to leave. The dad just had to leave. He's like, I can't even watch this. And even if sports isn't your thing, how many of you with your kids and when it comes to education will sit down for hours and make sure they understand how to do their math or how to do their English or how to read the book or how to spell their name or how to do whatever? Some of us will even pay tutors for that. We have these things in our life where like, you don't have a choice. You will be good at this. Yet what scares me, what really, really scares me is those same parents who will do that for sports and for school. They will tell you that they're believers and I will see that their children don't even know the basics of the gospel. And when you talk to them about that, they're like, well, we'll see if they choose to learn it. You know, I don't want to force them on that. That doesn't make sense. I don't see you letting them choose on Monday morning whether they're going to school. I don't see most of you choosing whether or not they're going to play the sports. But for some reason, when we say intellectually it's more important to be a Christian than any other thing in the world, on that we're like, eh, we'll see what happens. You know, I'm praying. I hope so. I'm just going to call, no, I don't, I don't think you're telling the truth. I think in action you're actually saying the sports and school are more important than being a Christian. You never say it with your words. But your actions are screaming that all day long. And that's why I've told you we have this epidemic in the American church where 90% of our 18-year-olds who grow up in the church, forget the ones who don't grow up in the church, the ones that grow up in the church, 90% of them 18 leave and we won't see them again until if we're lucky in their 30s. And you ask them why and they'll go, it wasn't important. It wasn't important to my parents. Like we talked about it. But at the end of the day, we live life just like everybody else. So I, I don't know why I need to go. It didn't do anything for me. And so parents, is this a priority in your life with your children? I, now look, you can't make your kid believe. But my goodness, they should know that it is absolutely the center of who you are. And they should absolutely see that you are pouring the Word and God's knowledge into their lives. It will be their choice whether they respond or not. But the reason they should respond or not respond should never be because they didn't hear it from mom and dad. That should never be the focus. And so as we go through this series, what I want you highly focused on is, one, is this truth for me? And two, am I truly fulfilling my role as a disciple of God that is going out these walls and is sharing the gospel with other people? Now in this series, what I'm going to take you through is what's called the Romans Road. Everybody heard of that before? Romans Road is five verses in the book of Romans that basically sum up the entire gospel. And well, of course, there's all kinds of depth that you can find throughout Scripture in different ways to break down the gospel. These five are a pretty simple way that hit the key high notes and are easy to remember. And so we're going to look at these each week and kind of break them down and study them. And what I hope you're learning is you're learning to memorize these and to talk to these. All right? Before I jump into it, let me give you a little story about this guy, Martin Luther. Um, anybody know Martin Luther? Amen. Not the King Jr., the one before that. Martin Luther is known for the Reformation. 
He's also known for a church called the Lutheran Church, which can, I bet you guys can guess where it got its name. Anybody? Following? Martin Luther, Lutheran Church? Okay. So what Martin Luther started his life as it was, was a Catholic priest. But in his journey, in his relationship with God, he was terrified. He was terrified of God because when he looked at his own personal sin and he looked at what the Catholic Church taught, you had to earn your salvation. He was terrified because he found there was no way he could ever be good enough to do that. As a Catholic priest, he would talk about how he was so afraid of God that he felt tortured. He was terrified to be in the presence of God because how could someone as sinful and as evil as him be in the presence of such a holy God? In fact, Luther often would explain the reason that Catholics tend to pray to Mary was is the way that Almighty God was presented was as such an angry, just, and wrathful God that no one wanted to approach Him. So instead, you'd go to His compassionate mother and hope that Mary, in compassion, would hear you and she would go plead your case to Him because He was too fearful to talk to And so in Luther's time, what was often prevalent was that God was so scary, nobody wanted to be in His presence. Amen. And so what developed over time was church life. Right? You learn the right things to do, but you're devoid of an intimate, deep relationship with God. Why? Because you don't actually want to be in the room with Him. Right? You want what He offers... You want forgiveness, you want salvation, you want to get to heaven. But my goodness, to sit in the room with God for five hours? No thank you. That's terrifying. I don't want that at all. And so with the Reformation, what Luther started to bring about was, I don't actually think that's how God is. When we actually read God's Word, that's, that's not the God we encounter. Amen. Yes, there's a wrath to Him. Yes, there's a justice to Him. Yes, there's a power to Him. Yes, we should have a fearful respect of Him. But the God that we encounter in this book is a God of unbelievable love. It's a God who the people who are most profound in Scripture actually just desire so badly to be in His presence. It's the ultimate place they want to be. And so he realized there had to be something amiss. Because the heroes of the faith, they loved to be in the presence of God, yet the church was creating a God that no one wanted to be around. You fast forward to where we're at today, and it's funny, I actually think we're in a similar point, just on the completely opposite end of the spectrum. See, I think in Luther's time, people were so afraid of God that they didn't have an intimate relationship with Him because they were scared of Him. I think in our time, we are so unafraid of God that we have made Him a buddy, a friend. We've depowered Him to such a degree we don't even know what the point of having Him in our life is. And when that happens, when either you fear Him too much or you don't fear Him enough, what happens is you don't really care about ever having a relationship with Him. All you really care about is the stuff He has. And so if you talk to a lot of people about why they're at church, why they're a Christian, you don't get any description about who God is. You get a list of things they want. Well, my marriage was in trouble and I was hoping God's wisdom would help us. You know, I've had anger issues, so I was kind of hoping if I came to church, maybe I'd learn to deal with those. You know, my kids have been just behaving, so I thought maybe if, if we came and, and they got some structure and, and you know, Bible in them, they'd start listening to me more. It's all these things they want. But none of the answers to those questions is I wanted a deeper relationship with God. And so the other thing I want you to see as we go through this series is that this isn't just about us learning what Scripture says. This is about making sure you and I understand what our relationship with God is built on. What's the very foundation of the relationship? Not the religion, the relationship with God. Because that's what you're supposed to be in. 
You're supposed to be a people in a loving, intimate relationship with God. So let me take you through the verses. First one, Romans 3.10. Basically what this tells us is, everyone's a sinner. So we're going to dive into that one today. Everyone is a sinner, Romans 3.10. Romans 3.23, we all fall short of God's holiness. So not only are we sinners, but we are nothing in comparison to the Almighty God. Alright? So Romans 3.10, then Romans 3.23. Third one, Romans 5.8. Despite those things, God loves us and sent Jesus Christ. So we're sinners, we fall short of His holiness, but God still loved us so much, He sent His one and only Son to be here with us. Amen. Romans 5.8. Fourth verse, Romans 6.23. We deserve death, but we are offered life. Amen. That's a big one. We deserve death, but we're offered life. And in the last one, Romans 10, verses 9 through 10, believe Jesus is Lord. And so this is where we talk about all the time, right? This is not just about believing the Bible is true, but it's about believing it to the point that you decide, He is my Lord. That means each and every day of my life, I follow Him. Right? He's not a consultant. He's not an advisor. He's not a 911 get me out of trouble guy. He is daily the Lord who leads me. Alright? And then lastly, Romans 10.13, we're part of His family. We're all part of His family. So not only do you move from being guilty in sin, you move all the way to being innocent and part of the family of God. Alright? Matthew 5.38, it says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brothers and sisters, the biggest thing that you need to start your understanding of Christianity with is the reason that Christianity is different than every other religion in the world. Okay? Then, then this is a key thing for all of us to understand. And I have this question a lot when I talk to people who are non-believers. Because even if you can get them in the point of a conversation to go, okay, I didn't believe in God, but you've got me interested. Let's say there's a God. Well, why should I start with Christianity? Why not Hinduism? Taoism? Buddhism? Islam? Right? Why would I start with Christianity? And, and when I get that question, I always point to one thing. Christianity is the only religion out of every other religion that teaches you, you cannot earn your salvation. Amen. Why? Because of this right here. How do you become saved? You be perfect. Not good. Not beneficial to society. Not a decent person. Not someone who serves in the community. Not a nice guy. Not a good father. Not a good wife. Not a good mother. Right? If you want salvation, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is not your good. The standard is you are flawless. If you are not that, forget it. And I love that standard because you know why? If we talk about good, if we talk about bad, we can argue that all day long. Right? We can argue all day long about who's good or who's bad because it's relative. Which is why when people don't understand the basis of Christianity, you get a lot of people who look at Christians as being what? A hypocrite. Why? Or hypocrite or judgmental. Why? Because what ends up happening is you get tired of comparing yourself to God because when you do that, how do you measure up? You don't. You get demoralized. You lose every single day. Like, did anybody have like an older brother that they played sports with and just every time you played him you got killed? Did you ever have that? And just eventually you're like, I don't want to do that anymore? I didn't have that because I was the oldest brother, so I guess I was doing that to my siblings. And actually, I wasn't. They ended up beating me. They became better than me in all sports, so you know it didn't work out in my scenario. But if you play someone the same game every single day and all that ever happens is you lose, you don't play that game anymore. You start looking for other competition. And so for Christians who think it's about merit and earning heaven, they get tired of comparing themselves to God, so who do they start to compare themselves to? Everybody else. Because here's how the logic works. 
okay, so if the standard of perfection, God's not going to take me. But if he thinks I'm better than the rest of these fools, maybe I'm good. And the moment you do that, the moment you make it now a competition between you and your brothers and sisters at church, are you more incentivized to see their positives or their negatives? They're negatives. Why? You don't want to walk in and be like, these people are amazing. So loving, so giving, so great at teaching. Oh no, I'm in trouble. I'm the worst one here. There is no way if there's a cutoff line, he's taking me. So instead, what you start to do is go, how am I better than these guys? You know, I'm not as angry as him. I show up on time, they don't. You know, they're always gossiping. I don't do that. You know, I raise my hands really high, both hands during worship. This guy only does one hand. <laughs> that guy doesn't do any hands. He clearly is not into this. Oh, wait, they're closing their eyes. I'm behind. i got to close my eyes. But I don't know the words. Right? We do this comparison of each other. And what we're all doing when we compare is we're just all pulling each other down. And God looks at those people and goes, you guys don't get how this whole game works. This is not about you earning heaven. You can't. The standard's perfect. And the most egotistical people I've ever met in their entire lives, they don't actually believe they're perfect. And so Christianity sets the baseline and goes, guys, not about merit. Can't earn it. If you wanted to earn it, be perfect. Who's out? Everybody. You're all out. And in fact... What then Christ ends up doing for us is showing us that each and every one of us is actually far more depraved than we actually think. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we probably get some of the most real understanding of how sinful we are. And, and I know, as I talk about this topic, most people are like, oh great, a sermon on sin. I wanted to feel good today. I wanted to walk out of here feeling all hopeful and energetic, and this guy's going to tell me how bad I am. Thanks. Stay with me, and I think you'll still feel that way at the end. There's a major disservice we've done to ourselves in the church by not wanting to talk about sin. I actually think we are undermining our own joy by not talking about sin on a regular basis. So look at what happens in, in, in Matthew chapter 5. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And so remember, law and prophets, that's what they called the Bible. Right? So Jesus is coming, he's teaching, he's performing miracles, and people are like, man, is this guy here to teach us something new? No, I'm not here to teach you something new. I'm here to fulfill scripture. I'm here to live out everything you've already learned. All right? For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was a big woe moment. Right? Who were the religious superstars of the day? Who, if we were going to rack and stack the players and go, who's best at the religion game? It would have been the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus walks in and he goes, you fools. You're best people. If you don't have more faith than them, you'll never see heaven. And everybody's like, what? What? Those guys don't get in? They're our best. They do this better than all of us. And you're saying we need more faith than those guys? And so he starts to break it down. Why is he saying that? You've heard that the agents were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then and can present your offering. You see what he said there? He goes, you guys have heard it been said that you should not commit murder. I tell you that if you look at your brother with hate in your heart, you're a murderer. Amen. Do you see what he's doing to the standard? 
Is he making the standard harder or easier? Way harder. And in fact, throughout the rest of this passage, he will do it to other things. He will say, you've heard you shouldn't commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. You've heard you shouldn't steal. I say, if you look at your brother and covet what he has, you're a thief. And so what Jesus is saying, guys, you've limited sin to your actions. Sin's about your heart. Now let's be real. Do we not know that in our, ourselves? Do we not know that in other people? Men, I bet there are a lot of us who have never committed an adultery on our wives. But you go home and you look at pictures you should never look at. And you think things you should never think. Don't think God sits there in those moments and goes, oh, that's a good and faithful husband right there. You daydreaming at work about how you wish your boss wasn't alive, which I know none of you do, doesn't make you a holy and righteous person because you didn't actually follow through on it. And this is why often I will hamper on you guys on the music or the entertainment that you're watching. I find it hard to believe when we're watching 90 minutes of people getting massacred that somehow that's glorifying to God. Do you think God watches that and goes, oh, that's hilarious, that's so funny, watching my creations be slaughtered. I love that. I'm so glad you guys are entertained by that. No. Jesus comes and he goes, you guys, the standard has been so weak. You don't understand your own depravity. It's not just about the actions you're carrying out. It's about the poison thoughts that are going through your head all day, every day. You guys fantasize about things you never should. And so when Jesus came, he went to show us that the bar for sin was even worse than they had imagined. It wasn't just actions. It was the emotions and the thoughts behind them. Now when you think about that, you go, oh my goodness, we're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. I could even be a guy who doesn't even do any bad things, but if my thoughts are right, I'm in trouble. And his point is, yes, exactly. So how's that a good piece of news? How's that good news for you and me? It's good news because it puts us in the proper relationship with God. We have to acknowledge, first and foremost, we're sinners. Each and every one of us, we are all sinners. And sin doesn't mean that we're evil people. It doesn't mean you walk around all day long trying to do the worst things. And I share that with you because I will often get into this debate with people like, but he was a good guy. I'm not saying he didn't try to make the world a better place. What I'm saying is he's a sinner. Why? Because sin is any time we fall less than perfection. Justin, will you help me? Sin is anything less than the perfection of God. So we're all sinners. The standard isn't that you're evil. The standard is you weren't perfect like God is. All of us are there. Third, this is the good part. Only sinners need a Savior. So let me connect the dots there for you. Why is it a good and glorious and beautiful thing for you to look in the mirror and go, I'm a sinner? Why is it an amazing thing for you to look in the mirror and realize, I can't do this? It's a beautiful thing because the only people Jesus can help are those people. If you walk through this world thinking that you are perfect, if you walk through this world saying, I got this, if you walk through this world thinking you don't need help, then you are closing the door for God to work in your life. Which means you are shutting off the funnel to all His perfect love, His amazing power, His mercy, His grace, His wisdom, everything that makes Him awesome. When you are arrogant enough to go, I got this. I'm good. I deserve heaven. You block that relationship with Him. However, when you and I are honest and we can look in the mirror and go, I don't have this. I'm in trouble. I need help. When you will fall on your knees and go, Lord, I need you. Then He shows up. 
then the glorious, amazing Lord shows up. And He brings with Him everything that makes Him perfect, everything that makes Him almighty, everything that you've been searching for. He comes in and He saves the day. And so brothers and sisters, the reason I hate that we don't talk about sin anymore is that without acknowledging the sin in our own lives, we're not putting our hearts in a place to be open to God. My desire for you is not that you look at your sin and go, I'm the worst person in the history of mankind. I shouldn't even be alive. My hope for you is when you look at your sin, you go, God, I need you. I need you so badly. And that you've forgiven me of all these things makes me love you so much. Because I don't understand it. I don't understand how you could love me that much. Jesus tells us in Luke 5.31, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Amen. Well, if Jesus is the physician, then I want to be sick. I don't want to be healthy. And this whole point in this is, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They were the most church people you could ever meet. They had definitions and rules for everything. We've talked about this before. They were so scared about working on the Sabbath, they made a rule about how many steps you could take. Their wives weren't allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath because if they looked in the mirror, well, that wasn't a sin. They might see that their face didn't look right. They might want to then put makeup on, which would be work, and thus would be a sin. Do you understand that logic? I don't want you to look in the mirror because that could make you want to do work, which would put you in trouble. Which, by the way, God didn't say any of those things were work. Those were all their own rules they built. Jesus' point was these fools have spent their whole entire lives making laws and rules and boundaries and they've missed me. And in fact, when God shows up in human form, the guys who've memorized word for word this book will look at me and not even see me. Why? Because they don't think they're sick. They don't think they need God. They think they've earned it. Meanwhile, those people on the fringes, those people struggling to live day to day, those people struggling just to get by, when He showed up, they went, that's God. Why? Because every day of their life, they knew they needed help. And so brothers and sisters, my my plea to you is don't avoid your own sin. Don't hide your own sin. Acknowledge your sin and present it before the Lord. It's not that we're trying to sin. It's not that we bask in our sin. It's not that we want to be sinners. But what we know is, I am. I am. And when I see it, when I feel it, when I know it, It reminds me of how much I need Him. And it's in those moments that He shows up and His presence fills me. I want to leave you with one last story. Flip with me to Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, verse 43... We are presented with one of the miraculous healings of God. I love this story. I love this story because not only of what occurred for this woman in her life, but I think this is just a beautiful picture of what our relationship with God is supposed to look like. actually going to start in verse 40. It says, As Jesus returned, the people welcomed Him, for they had all been waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet, and he began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went in, the crowds were pressing against him. 
And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out from me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had immediately been healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Make sure when you read the Bible that you picture it. Right, can you see the setting? This is Jesus at the peak of his ministry. Reminds me of those old videos you see of like when the Beatles were in America or Elvis was out in public. Ever seen those old videos? I'm sorry, I'm dating myself. Some of you are like seeing the old videos. I saw them in person. <laughs> it's amazing. Anywhere they would go, literally just thousands of people are flocking around them. There's no room. Everybody is pressed up against them. There's this mob of people everywhere. And we see it's funny to Peter because Peter's like, who touched you? Who didn't? You want me to find the one person who touched you, Jesus? Literally everywhere we go, people are just grabbing at you. They're all around you. I, who, thousands have touched you. But there was one thing different about this woman. And what I want you to think about that woman is think about that journey because I imagine she had to do some work to get that close to him. Right? It probably started with just her kind of zigzagging through people. Finally, she started to have this like pressing her way through, edging her way through people. Eventually, she's probably even crawling between people's legs to get that close that she's by Jesus Christ. And what makes her do that? What makes her fight through the crowds? What makes her push through the people? She's doing all of this to what? To simply touch his cloak. Why? Because she has a profound faith in her life. That he is the solution to her problem. The thing that drives her is she, more than anybody, admits, I'm not okay. I'm not healthy. I am broken, and in fact, I am broken in a way that no one can fix. It says in there that no one else could fix it. What's that mean? It means that this woman's ailment, this wasn't something that she just discovered. This was something that had been with her for so long, she had tried everything. She'd seen every doctor. She'd seen every nurse. She tried every medicine. She tried every home cure. She tried anything and everything that she could find to make this go away. And what she'd finally faced herself with is I have a problem that literally nobody in the world can fix. I am broken and I can't be fixed other than by God himself. And so when Jesus walks through that crowd, she doesn't just see a person. She sees the Creator. She sees her only chance to be made right. Her only chance to be made whole. And she is going to get to Him. Nothing is going to stop her from getting into His presence. Nothing. She will push through the crowd. She will crawl on her hands and knees. She will do anything to get by Him. Why? Because she knows she's broken. Brothers and sisters, we need that. We need the kind of heart like that woman has that says, I am broken in such a way he is the only one, the only one who can fix me. You are not going to stop me from getting to him. I will do whatever it takes to be in his presence. What I love about Christ in this moment too is it, it's such a beautiful representation of, of salvation. Right? Salvation's open to everybody. Amen. Just like in that moment, Christ's power was open to everyone. 
all these people are touching him. All of them are pressing against him. All of them are trying to get a piece of him. But none of them actually are. Yet she just grasps a little piece of his cloak and immediately goes, Who touched me? What was the difference between her touch and everybody else's? Why did her touch make power leave him? Obviously the power was there. Obviously it was actually free for the taking. He didn't look at her and go, here, I give to you. It was already available, so what was the difference? She had faith, and she knew she needed him. Everybody else wanted a piece of him, but I don't think they think they needed him. Jesus was a want, a desire, a thing that was nice to have, a thing that would be cool to encounter. It'd be a great additive to their life. For her, he was essential. And so when her fingers reached out to him, boom, that power fled through him right into her. That's why, brothers and sisters, we need to know our sin each and every day. Because it's my belief that if we have that knowledge in our hearts, if we are front and center with our sin, we will be like her. And when we reach out to Him, when we're in His presence, that power will come flowing through us, untethered, unrestricted, and it will heal us. But it starts from us saying, I'm a sinner. God, I need you. I need you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we come before you, Father, acknowledging our sin. Father, in and of ourselves, we are undeserving of your love, of your peace, of your power, to even be in your presence, God. Father, there is no right that we have to call you Lord, to call you Dad. But you have given us all these things. Because, Father, we've acknowledged that we're sinners. We've acknowledged we can't do this without you. And you, Father, in your love and in your mercy, you have forgiven us, you've washed us clean, and you have made us your children. Father, I pray that each and every one of us in our hearts have come to that moment, Lord, where we know the truth, that we're not good enough on our own. That we know the truth, Lord, that we need you. Father, I pray that each and every day our sins will be made aware to us. Not to bring us down, Lord, but to prepare our hearts take the forgiveness and love that you offer every day. Lord, we love you. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come to the front. Brother James will be in the back. If there's anything in your heart that you need to pray about, um, or just know that somebody else is praying for it with you, feel free to come on up as Maria sings. Maria? Let's all stand.
Where grace is found Is where you are Where you are Lord, I am free Holiness is Christ in me with you guys. I love you. I appreciate all the love, prayers, and support you give to us each and every week. Uh, remember, you've been given a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline, so use it. That means each and every one of the people in this room should be dangerous. Alright, stay with me. I am dangerous. Alright? People should be like, watch out. Okay? Here they come. Second, you got a mission. It's going to make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So don't let him come this week and find you not doing your mission. All right? I love you guys. Have a great week, and may God bless you.